Welcome to AUKUS Amplified from the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons. We're advancing hip and knee patient care through education, advocacy, and research. Welcome to part two of our podcast series on diagnosing and treating an infected joint replacement. We are again joined by Dr. Stronach, Saxena, Adigwama, Fracaro, Willenberg, and Belden. I am Dr. Matthew Bullock. Let us continue. So another thing we talk about is this extremely rare, but an infection can be caused by a yeast. And these I know are particularly difficult to try to get rid of. I wanted to see what your opinions were, Dr. Belden, Dr. Willenberg on yeast. Kind of how's that happen? When do we see that? And what do we look out for? And kind of the whole gestalt of things about when it comes to yeast infection, especially in a hip or knee replacement. So, I mean, fungal infection of a prosthetic joint is very uncommon, but we do see it occasionally. And definitely the most common type of fungal infection is going to be a yeast infection, most commonly due to a candida species. And sort of similar to thinking about multi-drug resistant bacteria, you know, when we see candida infection of the joint is usually in a patient who has medical problems, other conditions which would require broad spectrum antibiotics, because antibiotics will sort of eliminate a lot of the good bacteria in the colon, can allow yeast, which we all have in our bodies, to sort of overgrow and come really move from being sort of something that's normal on the body to what can be considered sort of an opportunistic pathogen or something that can cause an infection. Mm -hmm. So definitely the need for antibiotics is going to increase the chances of a fungal or candida prosthetic joint infection. So oftentimes we see these infections in someone who's already been treated for sort of a regular type of bacterial infection involving a joint or someone who requires antibiotics for another reason or someone with sort of multiple medical problems. Candidal infection of the joint is definitely treatable sort of in a very similar way to how we treat a regular bacterial infection, although oftentimes patients are sicker, may not tolerate surgery as well. So there can be complications in managing uh, fungal prosthetic joint infection due to candida. And oftentimes we do treat these patients longer. And another thing to mention is that candida infection can be involved with a bacterial infection as well, sort of an infection involving a number of different types of pathogens together. So it is a more complex condition. Dr. Wallenberg. I think one of the important things to think about when you're talking about candidate infection is the comorbidities that go along with this. And I think it sounds like you had a podcast to talk about optimizing comorbidities prior to surgery. I think it's important to make sure those comorbidities are optimized when you're treating an infection. Our population certainly is, we have a lot of obese patients that come to us from other centers that often will have uncontrolled diabetes and smoke and whatnot. And so to really be successful treating those fungal infections, it's really important to have your blood sugars well controlled and to stop smoking and do all the things you can affect your outcome for, in addition to antifungals and surgery. I know that there's several patients I've had with a yeast infection, and it seems to be that treatment for these is a lot longer than regular bacterial infection. Is that what both of you guys have seen too? Yeah, so the recommendations to treat a fungal PJI do involve a longer course of treatment, typically around 12 weeks of therapy is recommended, um, definitely also with uh, surgical intervention. 
So depending on the type of regular infection, the, the patient with a fungal infection may be treated longer. And oftentimes too, these are, you know, people who've had prior infections. And so we, we see more bony involvement and that can, if you have osteomyelitis, in addition to just the joint infection, that further increases your duration of therapy. Let's go ahead and and touch on, we have mentioned this earlier, but patient comorbidities, patient medical issues, and other risk factors for infection. We've been talking about these a a little bit here in our discussion, but I think we should kind of mention some of these big ones here that patients should look out for. This is where we need the help of the patient's uh, primary care physician or internist to kind of optimize before surgery. And like we said, we do have a podcast on this, but some things that I've seen are the big thing is obesity. And we mentioned diabetes. What do we think about smoking? Dr. Saxena, what do we know about that infection? Yeah, you know, obesity, diabetes, and smoking, those are the big three. Uncontrolled diabetes, smoking, obesity, they're all related to infection through multiple papers in the literature. So really, those are probably the three biggest, most obvious places that we can optimize our patients. And, you know, smoking, really, if you look through medicine and every condition, smoking just makes everything worse. So it's a pretty easy one to say, yeah, we really just need to cut out smoking. In fact, some insurance companies have actually denied surgeries for patients if they're smoking within a month of surgery. So, you know, it'll behoove everyone from the patient to the doctor to the patient's prosthetic joint to undergo smoking cessation prior to surgery, it's just going to be better for you overall. We've seen it throughout medicine. Yeah. Well said. Dr. Odigwami, what else have you seen that increases a patient's chance of infections? Or what do you screen for before you do a hip or knee replacement? Those are the main ones that were just touched on. And even if you do it tactfully, a lot of patients will not really take it too kindly if you talk about obesity and weight loss, but we're not doing it for any nefarious reason. It's really to save you from these major complications, infection, multiple surgeries. And it's just very important for smoking cessation, obesity, and, and diabetes to be, to be addressed. Other factors that can increase risk are previous surgeries to that area. So if they've had you know, a tibial plateau fraction, they have hardware there, something post-traumatic, or if the patient has had, I will ask patients if they've had a surgery before, if they've had an infection to that joint before, if they had a knee scope or something and it got infected, or they had some kind of native septic joint, then they're at increased risk for a periprosthetic infection after, after knee replacement. So those are other things you're screened for. And I, I would just mention skin conditions also, like uh, chronic skin conditions, patients who've been treated for cellulitis or other types of inflammatory skin conditions. It's always good to have those uh, under control and optimized before undergoing elective joint replacement. Right. And we also talk uh, uh, patients with some kind of inflammatory arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis. There's a regimen in which you should stop your rheumatoid medications. It's different for every drug and whatever your regimen is. But inflammatory arthritis can increase your risk, and that's why we have a protocol as to the timing for surgery in those patients. Yeah. Obi, that's a great point. AUKUS, and and again, collaboration, I think, really is what benefits our patients. So the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons combined with the American College of Rheumatology to create specific guidelines for those rheumatoid medications. So that's something that's been really helpful for clinicians in finding answers on what to do regarding those medications. That's on our website. I think another thing that is important is to screen for people who carry MRSA at colonization so they can be decolonized prior to surgery. That's something useful that we do. Something bacon. 
as a patient with that, you may be have to put some gel in your nose for a few days to treat that if you are positive or some surgeons will have you put some betadine or iodine type solution in your nose on the day of surgery and also use some special wipes prior to the surgery uh, to try to get that colonization of bacteria off your skin. What do we know about injections into the joint before surgery? Dr. Fricaro, you want to take that one with risk of infection? Yeah, this is definitely an area of interest over the last few years. We're studying it and and some other centers are studying it as well. It's really interesting. I think that we really should counsel our patients that, that a previous joint injection within three months can potentially increase the risk of infection. You know, and the problem is a lot of patients will come in and they want to schedule surgery depending on the surgeon's schedule or their schedule, maybe six or eight weeks out. And they're saying, but I have this event coming up in two weeks. I'm in a lot of pain, doc. Can we just try doing a quick injection to my knee to get me through that? And we're all working together and we're trying to help the patient, but we have to explain to them that that we could do that. But then I think we're obligated to postpone that operation at least 12 weeks from that time. So I think the studies are showing that pretty clearly that there is an association. And I think it's beneficial to probably space out a surgery from a previous joint injection at least 12 weeks. A lot of new information on that, and we're not really sure why it happens. That's where the studies are going on. But for some reason, a steroid in a joint within three months of surgery increases your chance of infection. So that's something very important for our patients to know. All right, let's go ahead and move to treatment here. So we've diagnosed an infection. We've talked about things. There's several different ways that we can treat an infection. And there's a couple things that we talk about. One would be a washout procedure, going in, opening the joint up, washing it out, getting rid of bad tissue, taking out the modular components or the removable components, taking those out, putting fresh ones in and kind of washing everything out and closing it up would not be taking the actual implants out, but the plastic pieces, plastic spacer in a knee or the plastic spacer in the ball and the ball in a hip, we can wash those out. That's known as a washout procedure. And then we're looking at other procedures where it might be a little more involved, where we have to start taking implants out, removing them from the bone. And I want to see what Dr. Stronach has to say about this. What's in your decision tree as to when to do what? Yeah, I think there's a lot of things that we factor in as to how aggressive you should be with surgery when someone presents with an infection. It's also very important to understand that our understanding of this continues to evolve uh, in pretty short order. I think we've seen some changes in the past several years in this thought process. So typically, very early on in the process of an infection, if you're right after surgery or if you had a joint replacement a long time ago, we think we've caught the infection very quickly. Sometimes it is appropriate to clean the joint out very well clean out any damaged tissue, and then any part that can be swapped out, so a part that's not deep embedded into the bone, such as the plastic piece, can be pulled out to clean and put back in. That traditionally was used fairly frequently in an infection and had a fairly uh, high failure rate. And so we don't recommend that very often anymore, but in certain circumstances that is appropriate. When you think that there's been a longer-term infection or a more aggressive infection, 
or a patient that is fairly sick and does not have a good immune system, we will frequently recommend taking out that part, whether it's the hip or knee replacement. And sometimes we immediately put a fresh part back in after we've done a, a significant cleaning. Sometimes we use this temporary type of device or an antibiotic spacer and then come back down the road to put in a new joint once the infection is completely eradicated. I think uh, our infectious disease guests have touched on this, but there's usually combined with surgery and antibiotics or antifungals in, in the setting of a yeast infection. But one to see, so after the surgeon would get done with, with their procedure to wash out, clean out, swap parts, this is typically when we involve our infectious disease doctors and kind of want to get your guys' thoughts of what are we looking at for antibiotics? How do we monitor things? How long are they on antibiotics for? How long do you go? What are signs and symptoms of antibiotics not working? Dr. Willenberg, you want to take this one? So sort of depending on the procedure, there's a period of time where you're typically on IV antibiotics and it depends a little on the organism as well. And then depending on if parts were left in or parts were fully removed, you might need an extended period of time on oral antibiotics or antibiotics by mouth. Sometimes if we have a certain select group of patients that have certain types of organisms that are not good candidates to have surgery again, and that are at high risk for limb loss because of you know, comorbidities, prior infections, status of their anatomy, and so they may end up on something that we call chronic suppressive antibiotics. I think you know, we try not to do that, and but sometimes that is one of our only options. And so while you're on antibiotics, there's usually monitoring labs that we check. Certainly while people are on IV antibiotics, those are much more frequent. And then we talk about a lot about side effects to antibiotics that you might have so that patients are aware of those. And while you're on antibiotics, you'll probably meet with your infectious diseases doctor as well as your surgeon more often early on. And I know that, you know, our group and your group, Dr. Bullock, we, <laughs> we're on the phone all the time. I've had your fellows come over to my clinic before. That's never a good day for me. And so, but, you know, I think it's important to know that that's a when you have an infection, you really have a team of doctors and it's important that your infectious diseases doctors and your orthopedists work together and speak to each other and talk about what the plan should be because those are the cases that really do go the best. Right, right. It's that team approach. We're in it together as a team and with a patient. So thank you. Thank you. So Dr. Stronach had mentioned here, we use antibiotics. Sometimes we wash out the hip or knee with antibiotics. Sometimes we use an antibiotic spacer. And I think that's important to distinguish from the antibiotics that the infectious disease folks would, would put the patient on. Dr. Saxena, you want to explain what an antibiotic spacer is, how that works in conjunction with IV antibiotics? Yeah, so basically what an antibiotic spacer is, it's a temporary, supposed to be temporary implant. And so if you think about a hip or a knee replacement, usually the components are metal and plastic, maybe even some ceramic. And so the temporary antibiotic spacer is a little different. With the temporary spacer, it's mostly a cement mold, which we usually mold outside of the patient in little, uh, almost like cookie cutter things that you can, you can get in the operating room. And what we do is that cement typically has an antibiotic in it. And sometimes we can even add an antibiotic specific to what we're trying to treat. If we're 
trying to treat a fungal infection, we can add an antifungal to it. If we know the bacteria that's causing the infection, we may be able to add a specific antibiotic to that cement. And then what we do is we implant those, uh, we put the temporary antibiotic lead and implant in. And the hope in theory is, is that antibiotic will kind of leak out of the cement over the next few days or maybe even weeks. And then we combine that with the antibiotics, which the infectious disease doctors prescribe, again, typically based on culture or clinical suspicion. And that hopefully gives us the best chance at at eradicating the, the bug or the bacteria that is causing the infection. As far as the antibiotics, maybe Dr. Belden, could you explain to patients sort of how they're delivered? Sure. So as mentioned, the treatment of prosthetic joint infection involves um, surgical intervention in combination with the antibiotics. And sort of back to the concept I mentioned earlier, as far as biofilm, depending on the status of the joint and the extent of the surgery performed, you know, that helps us decide on the best antibiotics for the patient. And of course, with what the type of infection or pathogen that's been identified is also helps with the selection of antibiotics. But as far as the root uh, of therapy, as Dr. Willenberg mentioned, oftentimes we are going to treat patients intravenously, especially for infections due to staph aureus or staphylococcus infection. That's probably the most common type of infection that we see. Although in some cases, we can sometimes treat patients with oral therapy, depending on the pathogen identified, uh, the status of the joint and the patient themselves, as far as would they be a a good candidate for oral therapy. But regardless of the route, whether oral or intravenous, um, we typically treat patients for about four to six weeks of therapy. And this is really because in addition to treating the area around the prosthetic joint, we're we're really treating for a bone infection. And that's usually the duration of therapy. If there is retained hardware, we oftentimes will extend therapy, sometimes just with oral antibiotics for another six weeks, so for about three months total. But the duration of antibiotics oftentimes reflects the status of the hardware. Thank you. And, And you know, Matt, I wanted to add one other thing about the spacers. When you have this temporary implant in there, this antibiotic eluding implant in there, most of the time you're able to function somewhat reasonably well. Dave, what do you usually do when someone has like a hip spacer or a knee spacer? What do you tell the patients they can and can't do? Yeah, so the spacers are functional and they really do decrease the morbidity for the patient. So I think that that has been an advancement, particularly in the knee. I think there's some potential benefit in that second surgery or the revision surgery. The knee is less stiff. There's there's less scar tissue to deal with. In terms of function, I tell the patient, I mean, it's like threads on a tire. If you peel out of every intersection, you're going to wear it out a lot sooner. These are not the Cadillac total hip or total knee device. These are meant to allow the joint to move to allow you to maintain some independence and some household function, but these are not the high-performance implants. They're going to be reasonably short-term. The goal of this device is to clear and eradicate the infection so that you can have your new hip or knee. So with a knee spacer or a hip spacer, a patient could walk reasonably, can get in and out of a car, doesn't need to be on a stretcher, things like that, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right. So I guess a, a question that a patient may have is, what's the success rate of treating an infection? And there's a lot of things that go into that. You know, how long has the infection been there? What type of bug? What type of bacteria? What type of yeast? 
Dr. Willenberg, Dr. Belden, you know, any ballpark numbers as to what the chances of treating an infection, say, from like some of the common organisms like Staph aureus, Staph epi, any idea? Yeah, so it does depend on the status of the hardware. So I think as been mentioned, what I always discuss with our surgeon is they're going to perform the least invasive surgery that will cure the infection. So for some patients, the ones that we're trying to identify early, patients presenting early, they may actually do just a debridement without removing the hardware, and then we'll follow up with a course of antibiotics. The success rate for those patients really varies, or I should say really the failure rate can be up to, say, a third of patients if the joint is left in. However, if patients have full exchange of the hardware with the entire joint taken out and either replaced at the same time or replaced down the road, success rate is higher. And I would say, you know, depending on the patient and sort of other factors, um, we see success rates 60, 70% of the time. Although, you know, really in any type of prosthetic joint infection, unfortunately, there is a chance for failure, but for the most part, patients can be managed successfully. So I guess this leads to the other question here is, so what if we can't get rid of the infection? So Obi, you want to take this one? So tried everything, we washed it out, did a couple surgeries on it, and uh, the infectious disease specialists have attacked this thing with antibiotics and thrown everything at it. What if it comes back again? What are we looking at? What's that patient in store for? How would you, what do you think about that? Yeah, so every patient's different. There are a lot of factors. Some patients, you can do two surgeries. Some, you'll do three surgeries. There are some studies that show that after two attempts at it, two-stage exchanges, the chances of success are pretty abysmal, less than 20% or, or so. And so we wrote this paper when I was a resident, which wasn't that long ago, called When Enough is Enough. And so it was, it was basically on this topic. So it depends on the bone quality, depends on the soft tissue coverage, but if you've done all that and the infection persists, then you're kind of left with three options, honestly. One is if there's extensive hardware in the patient and you know that there's an infection, you could wash it out and do chronic suppression and just accept that there's an infection and keep them on antibiotics so they, they don't get septic and that's it. The other option is taking the hardware out and doing what's called a fusion and that you keep the limb. You can't really bend your, but you keep your limb. It's stiff. Some patients prefer that. And the last option, which is devastating also, is, is sometimes amputation is, is honestly an option. And it's devastating, but, but sometimes for the patient's life, and so they don't get septic. And, and honestly, they can sometimes have better functions with that option. So those are kind of your main options if you can't eradicate the infection. It does happen every now and then. It's devastating, but that's the reality of it. We don't want to think about that. You know, sometimes our patients, we end up at the end of that road because we tried everything and, and we, everything, we want everything to go right. We want to find an answer, but for some reason, we've tried everything and, and that's what lies ahead of us. So those are the discussions we have to have with patients from time to time. I know that as surgeons, we don't like having those and, and infectious disease docs as well. They tried everything they can to keep the infection at bay or to help the body's immune system fight it. But for some reason, it happens. So. I think in closing here, we want to talk about the expected recovery time after a revision for infection, typical recovery time after a hip or knee replacement, the first go around or during the primary hip or knee replacement, somewhere around three months on average. We can see after a redo surgery, multiple surgeries for infection, having to put bigger implants in, take out bad tissue, we can expect that recovery time to be a little longer, sometimes 
tending towards four to six months. I want to see kind of pull our participants here. What type of things can these patients expect to do after their revision for infection? Of course, we're not going to give them a knee they had when they were 18 years old, but what type of things do you allow your patients to do? What type of things do you have them kind of stay away from after an infection, after it's been cleaned out and kind of so-called put at bay and kind of what can that patient expect to do? Ben, what do you think? What do you tell your patients? As we've said in other, I think it depends a little bit on the situation. If it's a little bit more of a straightforward situation, they've not had a lot of bone loss, you're able to treat them appropriately. I'm really not going to limit that patient unless they're wanting to do really extreme type activities, but you could get back exercising and be able to do yard work and be active and go hiking and do things like that. Uh, There's some situations where patients have significant bone loss. You're really kind of running out of options and you want the patient to be a little bit more limited, but really in all of our patients with hip or knee replacement, even when they've undergone some of these major surgeries, we continue to work to keep the patient functional. We want that patient to be ambulatory and be independent, be able to go grocery shopping and you know, be able to travel when they need to. So really want hopefully people to get back to their daily lives at the end of this process when they recover. Arjun? I agree with Ben. I mean, we want them to be able to do kind of what they want to do. I always tell my patients when they're encountering you know, an infection or a possible surgical treatment for an infection, Look, the number one goal here is to clear the infection. So we want a wound that heals. We want a joint that's not, you know, swollen. We want pain to get better. We don't want any signs of infection, redness, fever, et cetera. So really, as long as they're not infected, I kind of let them do what they want to do. Agree with Ben, you know, I don't necessarily want them skiing or, or skiing, but it really comes down to the patient and their situation. If they're young and healthy and they're active and they want to be active and they have good bone, and it's a straightforward case, then yeah, do whatever you want. But if there's that person you're a little more concerned about, you know, maybe they need to temper their activities a little bit. I think patients kind of, they sort of auto-regulate themselves anyway. So they'll kind of do what they're capable of and not do what they're not. So, but really it just comes out of number one goal. We just, we need that wound to heal. We need that infection to clear, and then we can kind of move forward. Dave, Obi, any other closing comments or pointers to our patients after they've had an infected joint replacement? I agree with those comments. I think the goal is to is to clear the infection, treat the infection. Infections, you know, again, it just, it's, we try to prevent them. We do a lot of things. You've, you've had some wonderful podcasts on optimization of the patients, but infections do occur. And when they do, the goal is to eradicate the infection first and foremost. And we try to get the patients back to be functional. There might be a little bit of a drop off in function, just due to the nature of the surgery, as we've talked about, the, the soft tissue injury that may occur, the bone loss that may result. But the primary goal in my mind is, is to clear the infection. Yeah, the primary goal is to clear the infection, as everyone said. It depends on the situation, the bone loss, et cetera. And I don't limit them either. Like uh, Arjun said, they self-regulate. But the main thing that I, that I guess I see limitation-wise is stiffness. I mean, they, they, they have had multiple surgeries, so... You know, we don't expect them to be zero to 125 or something. If, if they can get zero to 90 oftentimes, or even past that oftentimes, I'm very happy with their range of motion. So that's something to realize and to counsel your patients on beforehand. And just it's all about expectations afterwards, but eradicating the infection is, the, is goal number one. Right. Dr. Willenberg, Dr. Belden, anything else in closing remarks here? Yeah, I just want to emphasize that, you know, we really can't successfully treat most patients for these infections 
I think it's really overwhelming when an infection like this occurs after surgery. You know, patients plan a certain amount of time for recovery and an infection is, is a significant setback. Mm-hmm. But I always just try to emphasize to most patients that, you know, we're working together, the surgical intervention plus the antibiotic intervention, really for most patients, we're going to have a successful outcome the majority of the time. And certainly there could be a recurrence, but really even a recurrence, you know, we can treat that as well. So I I do think that it's important to be optimistic. And I also emphasize, you know, the amount of research and progress that's been made in this field and is ongoing. And I think we're, we're learning more about how to optimize the care for these patients all the time. I think it's also important to kind of set expectations up front that it is a long process and that you can be successful, but it does take time and, you know, months of care and treatment between parties and going to lots of doctor's visits, but you can get to the end and have a good outcome. Well put, well put. So in closing, um, I want to thank all of our participants for dedicating their time and their expertise to this discussion about diagnosing and treating infected joint replacements. I hope this helps our listeners understand a little bit about what goes through our minds when we have to treat an infection. And in closing, like we said, the patients aren't alone. It's a team approach to help them recover and help them regain function as well as eradicate the infection or help the best eradicate the infection from an infected hip or knee replacement. Please look us up on the website again, our AUKUS hip and knee website, that is hipknee.aahks.org for more information about hip and knee replacements. Everyone take care and I thank everyone for their time tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Thank you. Thank you. I hope you have enjoyed our discussion amongst our surgeons and infectious disease specialists. Please be sure to check out parts three and four of our podcast series, where we will meet two patients with joint infections and discuss their journey to recovery. For more information about all aspects of hip and knee replacement, please be sure to visit our website, hipknee.aahks.org. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for AUKUS Amplified. Visit aahks.org to learn more about how members of the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons educate, advocate, and investigate in the field of hip and knee replacement surgery.